This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Americans love a good story, and if it's a tall tale, all the better. But the stories we tell about our own history are often incomplete at best, or outright deceptions at worst. A new book from an Oregon-born reporter outlines what he says actually happened to the middle class over the past half century, the truth, lies, and omissions by our political leaders, and explains why a true economic recovery and rebirth of the middle class will require more opportunities for women and people of color first and foremost. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Jim Tankersley, who covers the economy and tax policy for the New York Times, talks about his new book, The Riches of This Land. Tankersley grew up in McMinnville and was a reporter for The Oregonian before landing in Washington, D.C., where he's worked for The Washington Post, Vox, and now The Times. We talked about what President Donald Trump gets and doesn't get about the middle class, why immigrants are so important to our nation's past and future economy, and what he's learned from years crisscrossing the country. We also discussed what he, and the media overall, got wrong in the lead-up to the 2016 election. Here's that conversation. Jim Tankersley, uh, congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for taking time to talk about it. I'm just delighted to be here. Thanks so much, Andrew. Why did you want to write this book specifically? If you'll just indulge me a little bit of a story, uh, I, it's it's kind of a cool origin story. You know, I, the, the book is either the product of three years of thinking and writing or almost an entire career. Um, hmm. And, um, you know, I grew up in McMinnville and uh, in the 80s and 90s when the timber industry was uh, kind of, you know, burning down in Yamhill County. And I went to high school with a lot of guys, hardworking guys, whose dads either, you know, worked in the mills or in the woods or, or in some industry connected to it. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time wondering, you know, what was going to happen to them? Uh, because the economy, this great ticket to the middle class that a good timber job had been, was was just not going to be there for them anymore. And I, so I, I, ever since I became a reporter, I've been kind of consumed with this question of like, when, when were the good jobs going to come back for, for guys like that? And uh, it's followed, it's been a theme of my reporting for a long time. But but as you know, McMinnville is a very white uh, place. I mean, it's less white now than it used to be, but mm-hmm. my high school was fairly white. And what I um, have learned over the years is, uh, you know, very quickly, you, you, you leave town and your experience opens up and you see that it's, it's not just white guys, you know, in rural Oregon who the economy wasn't working for. It's millions of other people. So the long-range sort of origin of the book is I wanted to know when the, you know, the great American economy was going to start being great again for the middle class and for all these people who had been promised, you know, a good middle-class life, security, comfort, you know, a better life for their kids. And, and then Donald Trump comes along and, and his... Um, his and this is sort of the three-year part. And when the book got started, was this question of was he going to deliver on these grandiose promises he made to to revitalize the middle class? And uh, at first, I thought the book was going to be kind of the narrow answer to that. But but I th- I think you know what it turned into was the much broader one, the lifelong one, um, because the argument of the book a- a- ends up being 
you know, where Trump goes wrong with the middle class is where so many other um, politicians have, which is he doesn't see what really made it great and 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 which Americans in particular are the key to reviving it. And and so I, I just suddenly, you know, over time of, of reporting became consumed with this sort of burning need to tell the world that, hey, there's this hopeful possibility out there. There's a story about workers who can who can make America work again and, and have to do it. Let's take a step back. I mean, the the part of the American myth, I guess, the great American dream is the middle class. But that is such a broad statement. That means so many different things, depending on where you live, what you look like. I mean, what does it mean to be middle class in America today or or who thinks they are middle class, uh, maybe to put a finer point on it? Most Americans think they're middle class, in- including people who we might otherwise consider to be in poverty and including a lot of people who are objectively wealthy. That's a tricky definition. And I think it's hard. There's, you know, in Washington now, there's just endless debates in the policy community over what, what should we call the middle class or, you know, who gets a middle class tax cut in some candidate's plan. Um, but I, I, I kind of like to define it with uh, with a board game that I played a lot of growing up, uh, the game of life, yeah. um, which, uh, which you know, is like a game where you roll around basically accruing economic security. Um, you get a car and, and a family and a house and a job, and, uh, and then you retire. And, um, and I think that is actually what most Americans think of when they think about being middle class. It's being able to access that security, have that um, wealth and, of, of, of you know, basic comfort um, to sustain them and to not be worried you know, day to day that if a crisis hits like we're in right now, that they will not be able to, to have a roof over their head or uh, to feed their kids. So um, I think by that definition, uh, America has had a big middle class at times and has had uh, a less successful run over the last few decades of, of bringing people into that uh, secure middle class life. Uh, one of the through lines of your book, um, you know, I, I was talking about the American dream myth, which is both a reality and a myth at the same time, I guess. I mean, there's certain truths to it. But um, you kind of point out that a lot of what we think we know about what made, to borrow the president's uh, term, America great, maybe in the post-World War II era, is not accurate. Um, you know, can you unspool that a little bit for us? What do we get wrong about uh, the post-World War II era and and kind of who uh, made that middle-class boom happen? Well, I think we we start with a national um, picture that uh, that is it's not wrong; it's just incomplete. I mean, we think about the men who came back from the war, white men uh, in particular, and sort of went to executive class jobs with you know suits and ties in the suburbs or you know on Madison Avenue, and 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 that is our Leave It to Beaver origin story of of the big expansion of the middle class. And it's true that those those things happen; those men came back and made great contributions to the economy. But it's also true, and I think this is the really, this is the part we just don't hear about and that we've missed, um, the difference between a pretty good economy that, that those men were bringing us and a transcendent one uh, is, um, in very technical terms, what economists call a productivity surge. And the productivity surge came from uh, basically letting people who had been held back for a really long time in the economy, finally start to contribute to the best of their talents. And those people are, you know, very specifically women and black men and, and, and other, you know, men of color, women of all races. 
And for most of American history to that point, they had been totally kept out of the best paying jobs, highest skilled jobs in the country. And that's just not a true reflection of what they were capable of. There's no reason why in 1960, almost every doctor in America should have been a white guy. But that was the case. Mm -hmm. So when we started allowing, you know, women who should have been doctors a long time ago to be doctors and black men to be engineers and to have access to those jobs, and, and we certainly didn't equalize opportunity, but even just making progress on it, well, that just made the whole economy work better, run faster, generate more income growth for everybody. So it was this boom of productivity that that helped the economy and and lifted up everyone and pulled you know people into the middle class, including white men. And to, to stay on the medical um, track, there uh, during that era, uh, you also had you know waves of uh, you know highly skilled immigrants from. Uh, South Asia, the Middle East, uh, medical professionals, right? A whole generation that came over during that time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that the um, the immigrant story obviously is a very salient one in our politics right now. And um, a huge amount of what white, wor white workers in particular are told um, is that, you know, immigrants come over here and, and compete for jobs. Um, but they don't see all the research that shows that immigrants come over here and create jobs and make um, make America more innovative and create entire industries. And um, that is a to be very candid, that is a thing that is, even in my discussions with workers who I've written about over the years, it is just something that, that people have a hard time because they don't see it in their lives. They see the immediacy of a competition for an existing job. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. economy is not a finite number of limited jobs. It's a, it's a huge amount of potential for new industries, new jobs, better ways to put people to work. And, and what the research shows us, because this book is, you know, fundamentally relies on human storytelling to explain detailed economic research. And what the research shows us is that immigrants are making that big positive contribution and, and have for a long time. Okay, so what does uh, Make America Great Again and, and President Trump's, you know, argument to the people, one of many arguments he made back in 2015-16, uh, get wrong about the uh, story of the American middle class? Well, I, I think there's two big things that, and, and one of them is what I just mentioned about immigrants and, and about this idea that, um, uh, you know, affirmative action hires or, or you know, nasty women are coming to, to take jobs away from hardworking white men. It, it, it's right. just um, in the aggregate, it's just not true. Um, in, in the aggregate, what's true is that when uh, women and men of color get ahead, white men get ahead also. Um, but I think the second thing is this idea that we can just restore an economy to the back to the way that it was like we had, you know, we have a saved version of it that we can revert to. Um, and Trump promised that he made huge promises about bringing back factory jobs that have been sent overseas. And man, they've just not come true. Um, the, we had some good manufacturing job growth for the first two years, but we still less than, you know, at, at the right before the crisis hit this current crisis, less than one out of every 10 Americans worked in manufacturing for the first time in modern economic statistics. Wow. So we are, we are in this like, tectonic shift of the economy towards services. It, it's not that we can't have more manufacturing. We can and, and we should. But the idea that the old jobs are going to come back is just not borne out in, in any of the research or the data. And um, the president promised sort of something that he couldn't deliver on. And, um, you know, he he does not have the results in particular in in the reshoring of jobs that he said he would. 
So um, from your perspective, someone who's covered the economy for uh, so many years, as well as all these presidential campaigns where people make these promises, um, and you look at the numbers, like you said, there's, you know, uh, manufacturing is not a, a, as much of a driver as it used to be. So how do we rebuild the middle class? Um, can it be done on a service industry or are there other, you know, big, uh, you know, manufacturing projects or infrastructure or, you know, what would it take to bring back um, the middle class? I mean, it's a really great question. And it's a really interesting one because we have um, for so long in America, um, people have wanted to point to that and, to, you know, certain politicians want to point to an industry and say, and I'll pick one that Democrats like to say, you know, solar panel installation jobs are going to be the wave of the middle class future. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think that you can find good micro stories about where good middle class jobs will come from in certain industries. You know, for sure, clean energy has a real future of, of job creation if you just look at the trends in, in, the, in the industry right now. But there's no guarantees that that's going to be the big driver. And I think Maybe one of the more frustrating things when I talk to people, and, and it's already a critique I'm hearing from folks who are reading the excerpts from the book, is uh, I don't tell you exactly where I think the industries are that are going to create them. I just tell you who I think the people will be who who invent the things. I, I don't actually think it's my job as an economics reporter to see the future about where the you know where it's going to be created. But no, no, it's I mean it's the right question. It's what everybody wants to know. But I can look, for example, at Silicon Valley and say it puts a, a just a truly absurdly low amount of capital in the hands of smart women, and say I really think if you look at the, the problems that women um, who start companies are looking to solve you know, environmental issues, carbon issues, healthcare issues, they are big human problems that does, you know, really demand big innovations. And I really think they, among other entrepreneurs will be the ones who figure out, okay, we've got a bunch of workers in America with real talent who are not being maximized right now. Um, again, women, non-white men, but also those guys I went to high school with who are great with their hands or great with an engine, like they're not being used to the best of their abilities anymore in this economy. Someone is going to figure out how to do that. I can't tell you exactly where or how, but I, I'm telling you who I think it is who will make that happen. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, I sort guess, of. Yeah, of no, it's it all comes back to baseball. Andrew. I really uh, I do. I, I like that. <laughs> so um, I'd be remiss in um, not mentioning your your you know, fellow Yamhill uh, County New York Times <laughs> reporter um, uh, Nick Kristoff and his wife Cheryl Wudun have a book that kind of touches on some similar themes, but also, um, you know, it's talking, it's called Tightrope. We had a podcast with them as well. But, you know, they, they really got into the social consequences, I think, of some of this unraveling. Um, how do you see your reporting in your book? and that story um how they weave together or don't i mean first off i, I am just the biggest fan of nick Kristoff, and it's um when you grow up in yamhill county and you want to be a journalist when you grow up even a little bit uh nick Kristoff is you know the beginning and the end of the of the the list of of people who everybody tells you you should look up to and then they're right right <laughs> um and nick and i fun story both started off as interns at the news register in mcmanville uh when we were kids and so i i think um and he has been Not bad uh, it's it's amazing, right? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, it's uh, you know uh, it remains my you know my my 
one of it means a real honor to 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 know that I will never be the most accomplished former news register intern. <laughs> um, but uh, and he's Nick's been very very helpful with this book, and he talked me through. We had lunch in New York, um, and he talked me through some themes on it, and uh, and and I think you know what they really get to uh in their book that i you know is is the social consequence of these trends and and the way that it's totally unraveled communities and i touch on that a little bit but they they really in such searing detail get get into it and and i think it's both um it's a real testament to, to nick and cheryl that they are um able to show such a wide range of human consequence to economic failures um and i i think because I was trying to make a, an argument about the economy in, in my book, I, I had to be more limited. Um, but I'm really glad they did theirs, and it, it feels like a, a, a tr- you know a, a very necessary um, read for anybody trying to understand the, what's going on and the consequences of these shifts in the in, in the country. Well, it can be a companion set. <laughs> well, I would love I would love that. I mean, obviously they wrote an amazing book, so I, I only hope to, to to stand next to it. Well, let's take a break, then come back and talk a bit more with uh, Jim Tankersley, a reporter for the New York Times, Nick Minville native. So, Jim, part of your book, you kind of have a little bit of a mea culpa about how you covered uh, the 2016 election and the run up to it. Of course, you were not the only person writing about the Trump uh, candidacy, but um, how are you covering this election differently than you did in 2016? And what do you see when you look at the landscape of stories? I mean, obviously, things are so dramatically different with the pandemic and the racial justice movements. But I'm just wondering what what you're seeing differently out there. Absolutely. In 2016, all of us who covered the election, either directly or indirectly, and I was sort of covering policy in the election, but we were all really taken right by Donald Trump's just stunning rise. I mean, he was a guy that no one took seriously. We didn't even have a full-time beat reporter on him at the Washington Post where I was working then um, at the start of the campaign. Um, And then suddenly he comes out of nowhere. And and I think the very correct question was, what's motivating this support? It, It seemed... He was more than just a celebrity. There was a policy reason. How do we understand what, what's happening and what's motivating his supporters? So what started off as a very good intention, I think, turned into an overemphasis on stories about distraught white workers in the Midwest in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it was, I mean, if you look at the stats, which I run through in the book, it's, it's comical. Um, it would be comical if it wasn't so sad just how much more we wrote about white workers than the black middle class or the or the latino middle class or, or anyone who wasn't basically like a white guy in the midwest i i think that was bad for two reasons one we actually missed part of the story which was that working class black workers in cities in crucial states i mean as a political story they were feeling really left behind still in the recovery too and they were also swing voters we just didn't realize that they were swinging between whether to vote for hillary clinton or or not to vote at all because they just didn't feel Mm. like there was anything out there for them and and that made a difference it really did in the election um we didn't cover that at all and we should have but then we also gave white workers this idea that they were suffering sort of by themselves and and i think that's dangerous too you you gave them the idea that they, their problems were not, you know, connected to the bigger problems of the of the full diversity of the working class. So this time around, the good news I think is that we, you know, reporters have done much more 
coverage of the problems that black workers in particular face, but also immigrants and, and Latino workers. And, um, and we, I think, have, have been had richer coverage for it. Um, it's helped inform things more. We're still we still write about white workers, and we should. Um, but you know, I think it's been a, a better. It's still not perfect, but better. And then the protest movements, I think, have really um, called a lot of attention for a lot of people who didn't really realize the prevalence of discrimination that still exists in this country. And we've seen the shift in polling, and that has been. You know, something we've had to really reflect on in in our own coverage, and and uh, you know, if you don't mind me telling like an old Oregonian story here, sure. Um, you know, when I first joined the O, we, we were, which was like two thousand, right out of college, we were, you know, as a newsroom, we're going through these discussions about how how can we uh, better reflect the full diversity of the communities we cover. How can we in our staff and in our um, you know, in our coverage and the, and the stories we choose. And, and um, the people running the paper at the time, uh, Sandy Rowe and Peter Badio, uh, Trace Bottomley, who now runs the paper, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they took it really seriously and made really important efforts and strides. But it's really striking to me that journalism today is still struggling with those issues. We still do not, you know, fully represent the communities we cover. And so we miss stories like we did in 2016. And I'm hopeful that these movements within our own industry are going to be uh, a force of change and, and get us, you know, so we're not missing important things about the country that, that we should be reflecting to everyone. Yeah. And, and when you're at, at a, a big institution like the the Post or the Times or, or any of the, you know, the East Coast media establishments and you're missing the story, think about, um, some of the smaller newsrooms, which have been just absolutely hammered, right, yeah. um, in terms of attrition and uh, layoffs and everything uh, that you, you chronicle in the book as well. Um, so one of my favorite sections, Jim, was um, talking about your time in Toledo, Ohio. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what, what do you think has changed since you're reporting from that state, which is always such a bellwether state in the election? You know, you in 2006 said that, uh, both the state and the country really suffered from a lack of leadership, innovation, and too much reliance on government subsidy. Are those factors still, you know, uh, salient to you? Yeah, to, you know, Ohio. I had never, I had never lived um, east of the uh, of a few miles east of the Rockies. I, I never lived east of Denver before I moved to Toledo, to Ohio, and it was a really different place. Um, uh, you know, a place where they ask you uh, where'd you go to school. And you give an answer and they say, oh, no, 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 high school. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, there's just like this like really, um, you know, fierce local civic pride in the various, you know, parochial schools people went to. And, and, um, and I really loved it. I really loved the people there. But I could see from the get-go, like all anybody cared about were economic questions and their politics, because even though the rest of the country was still in the, the housing bubble and, and the growth that was coming from that, Ohio was losing tons of manufacturing jobs. The story there has changed a bit. They've actually attracted, um, when John Kasich was governor, they attracted more foreign investment and and, and have had a, a bit of a rebound in, in manufacturing. But it's 
it's nowhere what it used to be for Ohio, mm-hmm. and the state is still uh, lags other states in in innovation. What's what's really crazy is is sort of the rise of Columbus, Ohio, which is a, a college town, right? And and feels like a lot of the college, you know, big college cities in the Midwest now. And when I go back, uh, it's like, wait, whoa, Columbus is hip now, <laughs> which is crazy. And then you go up to Toledo, and and it, it still feels much more like um, the industrial Midwestern throwback city that it is. Uh, but um, I think the politics in Ohio, to that sense, have not changed at all, although it has it has swung more Republican in recent years. But one reason why it appears to be up for grabs in this election is, you know, we're in the midst of an economic crisis again, and Ohio is is struggling with it and, and struggling with the healthcare uh, crisis uh, that that comes from a pandemic. And and I uh, I think we're going to spend a lot of time as reporters who who if we can leave our houses, which which yeah. some of us can't yet uh, uh, for uh, reporting trips. Um, but once we're able to do that more, I think we're going to be spending more time in in states like Ohio and and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, like we always do, because the economies there are going to be real uh, determinative for the the election. You mentioned universities. Where does higher education fit into this, you know, middle class um, hollowing out issue? And, you know, timing wise, it all depends on when you graduated. I feel like if you were saddled with six figures of debt, um, you know, I'm 36. I just barely got out before uh, the tuition went up uh, insane. So like how how does that fit into the equation in terms of lifting people to a, a new economic reality? And how do we do that if it's so? Uh, prohibitively expensive, especially for uh, lower income families. It feels like such a trap because on the one hand, more and more and more now, um, young people are told you need a college degree to get a good paying job. And in large parts of the economy, that's true. Um, I do think there are a lot of jobs that probably don't and should not require a college degree, but it's sort of a signaling thing for employers. And it would be great if we as a country, as we rethink education coming out of this, um, you know, crisis, crisis moment for it in the pandemic, it would be great if we could rethink like, okay, maybe the four year college model um, that we have is not perfect for a lot of, um, you know, potential workers and, and are there better ways to pair them with the training they, they need to get, you know, good jobs in emerging industries and to retrain them over time. Um, I mean, that's something that other countries do better than we do. Uh, it's just sort of more of a lifelong retraining process. Right. But in, but in terms of the, of the people who do go to college, I mean, we, it, it is not a complete guarantee. I mean, I've written in the, in the past about just how hard it is for low income students to make it through even community college, just because life is hard and, and you're balancing all these things in your working and and um and even little things can just knock you off the track and then if you end up with all this debt and you don't have a degree or you have a degree but you're not you know working in the field um that you were hoping to uh you it can be really really feel like quicksand and so you know i think that this is it is both true that a pursuit of of education and skills has been a dramatic help to women in particular in, in terms of making gains in the American economy. It's also true that it's not a panacea. And if you look at like outcomes, salary outcomes for black men versus white men who graduated from college, you can see just how much discri- discrimination there still is, even at the high ends of the labor market. So we have to balance all those things in mind. And, and at a time when also the, the entire business model of higher education is, is under attack uh, from this crisis. 
Yeah. And um, I guess you mentioned um, depressed wages for people of color. I mean, that's really economic oppression, right? We talk a lot about oppression these days, um, whether it's systemic racism, but uh, economic oppression is something that m might not get the attention that it deserves. Yeah. And I, I just sort of think there was this debate after Trump's election about, um, you know, what what explained it? Was it economic anxiety or racial anxiety? And um, I have come to believe they are very, very much the same thing. That in, in America, it is almost impossible to separate the questions of economics and questions of race. There's just so many economic outcomes are, are, are so heavily influenced by, by racial prejudice. And, you know, I, I think that we are now in a moment when people are starting to see you know, the fact that, that a typical white worker entered this crisis, like a typical white American household, with enough household wealth that if they, like, sold everything they owned, they could go three years of replacing the income they, they lost from their typical job. A, for, the, for a typical black family, it, it, it's like six months. Wow. Um, just, a, just, a, just a dramatic difference. And um, I, mean, I, I really think that that is a, um, a product of the long-term um, accumulation of discrimination and lack of opportunity. And that's something we're going to have to challenge with policy. How do we help people build up wealth so that they are not, you know, in those fragile states. But, but if we don't think about the people who have been left behind in the economy, um, and we don't think about that as both a, a racial and a gender issue as well as, um, you know, and an economic issue and important, like our economy does better when those people get ahead, um, then I think we will be leaving a lot on the table that we, that we could be doing as a country. Do you see Joe Biden or Donald Trump making those types of arguments now to the American people? I mean, I, I think that um, it is hard to tell, uh, particularly with the Biden plan, because he has so many plans um, <laughs> uh, and he has so many advisors. I wrote, I wrote a piece a couple months ago about how Joe Biden has, is like talking to, you know, his campaign's talking to sort of hundreds of different people on the economy, but they won't say who actually has his ear. Um, and it's sort of like this like fight club. You don't talk about advising Joe Biden. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I certainly... The Biden plan certainly has a large section on, you know, racial wealth building and the, the um, but the experts I talk to on those issues are sort of like, well, we'll believe it when we see it. I think that's been true of a lot of candidates. You know, I, I will say this for the president, um, his criminal justice bill that he signed uh, has been, uh, you know, hailed as a, as a good step by several of the people I talk to who talk about, you know, about mass incarceration being a real impediment to to black uh, men in particular uh, getting ahead in the job market. But, um, you know, I, I think this is not really turning out to be a contest of ideas on economic policy as even though all elections should be, Andrew, they should just all be decided yeah. on, on that. But, uh, but this, And even though we're yeah. in the worst uh, economic, you know, recession potentially that we've seen, right? Yeah, no, this is, this is um, our second, once in a lifetime economic crisis of our lifetimes to go back to Oregon. It's like the hundred year flood that hit Vernonia, you know, right. Twice in, in a decade. Right. Exactly. No, exactly what it is. And it is, um, uh, I think it's, it's, it's not a moment when people are as obsessed with the details of policy as they were even during the democratic primaries, when we saw a really robust ideas debate, uh, early on, um, but I do think there's, it's going to be people voting on sort of, you know, 
do, do what do, what do I believe about what's going to get the economy going again um, and get the virus under control, which is so crucial to any hope of economic recovery. Uh, what was it like writing this? Because um, I know that you talk about the pandemic at, at parts of the book. I mean, so you're obviously writing it <laughs> at some point or portions of it recently. What was what was that process like? So I signed up to do the book in early 2017 when we didn't really know how the story would end. We, we knew that, you know, okay, I have I have some very big picture stories to tell about the middle class, but I also am going to include this assessment of how Trump has affected it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until... February of 2019 that I kind of sat down to finally sort of call it on that and say, okay, I think I know enough. I've seen enough about how the economy is working under Trump that I can, I can start writing this book. Um, so I wrote it. I didn't, um, when I joined the times, they basically told me it would not be an option for me to take a book leave for the book I was Ah. already under contract to write. So I wrote it, um, at night, uh, and on weekends and a lot in the very early morning, I would get up at five and come downstairs and, uh, take the dog out, and then he and I would sit down and and uh, and write for a couple of hours, um, and uh, and I finished it in October, and then finished the sort of what I thought was going to be the the final set of revisions uh, just after New Year's, um, and then the pandemic hit before it had gone to press, and we had a, a frantic couple of weeks of discussions, and just decided to rip up, you know, parts of the book, and I wrote ten thousand more words. Um, uh, again, you know, nights, weekends, whatever. And, uh, it was both exhilarating and, um, completely exhausting. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, but, uh, but I, but I, I'm glad we did it because I, I think that it's hard to write even a big picture economics, anything right now without discussing this huge crisis we're in. It'd be a little bit like the, the elephant in the room, um, in the home office, the elephant in the, yeah, home, the, office, elephant in the home office. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, looking back at, um, you know, American history and, um, you know, we've the wars and famine and more wars and, you know, economic booms and busts and now a pandemic. I mean, looking back at all of that, what, um, you know, is this an optimistic time? Um, should we be optimistic about our ability to get out of this um, and build towards a, a better country. I mean, I think it's objectively a pessimistic time. It's a hard. It's a hard time. I, I have a fourteen-year-old son, and um, I think I can see him sort of weighed down by how difficult the world is right now. And I know a, yeah. a lot of parents feel that way. I know that a lot of us feel that way. Um, but I do think there are some reasons for optimism. And um, I know Portland has gone through such strife with the protests, um, but I think the broader protest movement across the country, the act of Americans demanding a more forceful redress of inequalities and long-running, you know, um, barriers to opportunity, and and I mean, it gives me hope that that we might start to see big shifts in in politicians being forced to confront that um i don't get that hope from politicians by the way (laughs) right i have learned in my course of my career that that if you that trusting in politicians most of the time will give you um will just give you a letdown and and that being cynical is actually a, a smart thing as a reporter in particular but um but i do really have faith that people are are starting to see this white people and and are starting to see what what black and latino and and uh, asian and and other um non-white american groups have seen for a long time native americans have seen for a long time which is that there 
we have, we have a long way to go to eradicate uh, racism and sexism. And the sort of end of the book is a, pol- you know, they will always want you to do policy prescriptions. So I give a few ideas of, you know, things you could do in Washington. But the biggest idea is, hey, we should all be a lot less racist and sexist as a society, which is both incredibly basic and incredibly difficult. That's the trick. Even if it's obvious, and even if people are recognizing it right in front of us, it's really hard to do. It's not just like in our hearts, we all have to change things. We have to change institutions, and we have to change how business works, and, and the um, universities work, and and um, the government works. But uh, I, I think it's a hopeful book, because I, I believe in, in people, even though uh, the book contains a whole lot of depressing uh, stuff. <laughs> Um, a lot of the book, which people, um, really should pick up the riches of this land. Um, it's a a great read, but it's also kind of a, the ultimate, uh, note, notebook, um, review or notepad, you know, going back through your, your archives as a reporter. Um, and you talk about some of the lessons you learned along the way. Um, so I'm wondering what, you know, when you did that, um, we're never going to get everything 100% right in the moment. But are there things that we should be doing as reporters now uh, to make sure that maybe we get it as right as we can in in these times? I mean, I I actually think that the best thing we can be doing always is um, both challenging ourselves to, to even when we are on deadline and overworked. And I, I know it's so much harder when, you, when you're at, uh, I'm, you know, a, a smaller place with a smaller staff, you know, like you said, regional, uh, local papers, even, even a lot of the national papers now are, are having to do more with a lot fewer resources. But I, I think when you can always keep big questions as your guiding light, you know, what's, what's gone wrong here? What's, what's, what's not, what's the story that's not being told? I, I think that's the, the first thing that that we all need to do. And then the second thing is just look outside of our own experience. Um, I remember once um, I I was hired uh, in one, one of the jobs that I've had since I left Theo and, um, and uh, the person who hired me uh, told me that, you know, I reminded him of him, uh, you know, when he was my age and uh, I told this to a friend and my friend, she said to me, uh, well, that's, that's nice for you. Uh, how could it, you know, how could a woman ever, ever remind him of him? Um, and I think about that a lot when thinking about, you know, whose experience am I reflecting in my stories? Who am I talking to? Um, I think it's really important to try to talk to people who are having experiences that you are not contemplating, who are outside of where you live, or it's why I love flying around the country and talking to people in places I wouldn't otherwise go or see. And, you know, I think even in local communities, that is a crucial thing to be always pushing ourselves to do is ask whose voice is not being heard here, uh, whether it's someone along the political spectrum or someone in, you know, within the community and, and push to do that. Because I think, so, you know, so often they have a part of the answer or a part of the problem that, that is not being raised in the um, top line public debate, but is crucial to our understanding of what's going on. Well, Jim, thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk about it and uh, good luck. Uh, 
back back east in in DC uh, as we gear toward election. Uh, thanks so much. I would uh, only ask that uh, at at some point in the you know uh, later this year uh, that you have me back on for the Expats Trailblazer Championship Celebration Podcast. <laughs> uh, so we can just get a bunch of alums together and talk about how amazing the eight seed run all the way to the finals and beyond was. Yeah, I I love fan fiction. Let's do it. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jim. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Jim Tankersley will be appearing virtually at Powell's Books August 19th. I shared a link in the episode notes. If you like the show, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. You can support the show directly by subscribing to Oregon Live at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.